Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Wicked Good Development. Today you will hear the rest of the roundtable discussing the DevNexus conference, as well as two interviews with developers giving insights into open source. Enjoy. So I know we, we, we started this by talking about conversations, but it is all about conversations. The whole thing about a conference is that you can have conversations, which you could not do like we're having now. You can't do this virtually. You can't bump into the guy from Cold Fusion who tells you, how do we, you know, we have this problem. You can't discover these things because you can't have conversations. On, on top of that, like, you, I probably would have not even taken that conversation if, if it came to me, like, via email or something. Like, hey, you want to talk about Cold Fusion? I'm like, no, I really don't. But because I happen to be there and, oh, wait, okay, that sounds interesting. Let me lean in a little bit and listen. Uh, you do get that extra feedback that you would have gotten otherwise. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think of conferences as as this this a massive intelligence gathering exercise, because you did, I mean, you had conversations, but of course you could have gone to a talk and seen, hey, there's a talk about cold fusion or whatever that you weren't expecting. And if you go to that talk and that the room's packed, that you know it's an interesting topic. And these are the there's all these sorts of insights you get from conferences because you go there and do this intelligence gathering. It's almost impossible to do this any other way. And and then, of course, once you find something, you, you can go talk to the speaker, which you, know, you can have a reasonable conversation with the speaker face-to-face. It's quite hard to do that on a webinar because they tend to want to sign off. You know, So I'm, I'm always very positive about conferences because of all this valuable information that we get and these personal relations. One of the very satisfying things that I observed along those lines is just... Every company and especially companies that make developer tools have pain points in seeing how people are using them and possibly not using them correctly. And as a result, developers get frustrated if there's a bit of a disconnect there. So I saw a lot of conversations of developers that were just able to go up to this product that they're using and say, hey, what am I, how could we do this better? Um, How can I get the most value out of it? And that's just not really possible outside of the conference setting that I've seen. And it was interesting to see too. I talked to a lot of developers and one of the kind of small talk narratives that kept coming up was, oh, I'm a developer. I'm so introverted and it's so exhausting being here. I haven't talked to anyone in two years. Um, But what I was really seeing body language wise was everyone was really happy to be there because it is satisfying to have those conversations and get more out of being a developer and being part of a community than you'd get just sitting behind the screen. Yeah, I totally uh, resonate with some of the thoughts shared here. I remember before COVID, I had gone to TechCrunch in San Francisco and I was manning a booth there. Um, Though it was for a different reason, it was a business startup conference and uh, we were pitching the company to potential investors. So this one was very different, but also very similar in many aspects. Um, I would say uh, what was fascinating for me, since I'm relatively new to Sonatype, is that um, I actually got a chance to talk to dozens and dozens of developers, which my tool caters to in person. I think being a product manager, um, all the conversations, customer conversations I'd had before this was online, was over Zoom, and actually getting them, having them right in front of you and being able to ask and dig deep. And be like, hey, do you want to get lunch? Or do you want to go out for a walk for 10 minutes? I think that was fascinating. And of course, Atlanta's weather was far better than Toronto's. So 
you know that was one of an additional perk um uh, but but uh, like specifically i'd like to mention luis mahano uh, who i had the chance to uh, do the podcast uh, to do a recording with it was fascinating to talk to him somebody who's so experienced and and such an influencer in the open source space all right my name is luis mahano i'm the ceo of word to solutions i'm a computer engineer by trade and i was born in el salvador so for those spanish uh, listeners mi nombre es luis soy del Salvador y soy ingeniero y soy el presidente de una compañía que se llama Work to Solutions. Excellent. Okay, and we're here with Rishav. Can you say a little bit about yourself, Rishav? Yeah. Uh, uh, hey, I'm Rishav. I'm a product manager at Sonatype, and um, I'm, it's a pleasure speaking to you. Um, yeah. So, what kind of work do you do? How's your conference been? Sure, the conference has been great. Uh, coming here for many, many years now, so very excited to be in person again here. So that's very exciting. I've uh, been a speaker a few times, so it's been wonderful this year and I do a lot of things so actually I created an open source MVC framework for CFML in 2006 so 15 years ago I uh, went mainstream and building lots of tools and uh, for developers especially in the CFML and Java world and now we have tons of moreover I think we have about 400 uh, open source uh, repositories and projects that, that we curate and we have and then apart our professional services branch to kind of maintain all the open source stuff. So our focus is open source. Wow, yeah. that sounds super interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm always interested in how the open source community gets supported by, sure. by companies and you know uh, how they get their funding because this is a big issue in the community, yeah. isn't it? What is your take on that? How do you support open source? Yeah, well, I think that you have two choices, right? You can either look for money, right? To somebody to invest in you, right? Or you can do the work and be disciplined and go through it. And I took the, the latter. So I did the hard work. I did the discipline, uh, no debt, zero debt that was important in order to actually do a business. And then it's just, uh, you know, doing the work, right? Doing the grassroots, going to the conference as much as you can, being wise financially at the beginning. And obviously things evolve as you progress. But Ortus is fully self-funded, right? We have no, no outside interest. It's all us. We're zero debt. And uh, that's how we can actually keep development for open source. Uh, through time, we found that as our developers want to do all the time open source, but that's not possible sometimes. So we have a ratio in Ortus where 70% of the time is kind of uh, dedicated to client work, right? professional services, all kinds of things that actually bring income. And then 30% of their time they can use for building open source, oh. right? Uh, they can use it for research and development. They want a new products, right? Or new initiatives they want to bring to us that, that will go through our brand. And that ratio has really, really worked, especially for people who don't get burned by dealing with just client work. They can actually work on fun stuff. And that ratio has given us the ability to continue with open source without the need of looking for, for funding. That, that's something which I find very interesting. What inspired the 70-30 ratio? Like, how did you come to this? <laughs> Trial and error. <laughs> Trial and error. Yeah, I, I cannot tell you there was a specific you know, moment in time. It was just at the beginning, you know, obviously you're like one month, oh my gosh, I can't pay everybody, right? Uh, so then you start, you know, playing with the numbers and trying to find that balance, right? So for us, it took several years to kind of find that balance. And now we find it at 70-30. Especially like we know, let's say we're doing the, our conference, which we do every year, right? We, we lower it, right? Because we know that more people are going to be involved in the open source, right? So we lower it to 80-20 right or or it could be something different right so through time we've learned these kind of formulas that work 
and also people are you know the developers are happy because they don't have to really just focus on client work but they can focus on building new things right so that was uh, very important for us to have that dynamic in the group yeah. sounds awesome and how do you see the open source community how do you think it has evolved since 2006 and since you created this how yeah. what how how do you manage these changes like what how do you see the industry how how it has moved in the past and how it's evolving for the future. Yeah, I mean, being an open source, you know, company for more than 15 years, think you see a lot of changes, right? Obviously, you saw you see a lot of big players now getting involved with open source that they didn't before, like Microsoft, right? Um, although their their rules for open source are kind of now a little bit different, right? You have to sign legal agreements in order to actually do pull requests, and you know, there's all these legalities and things that come with that, right? So I think that aspect has changed, right? I think uh, collaboration is more out there. Everybody knows that open source is valuable at this point, right? Um, I think it just has gone mainstream, right? Before, the trust level was not there, I would believe. Uh, you know, it, you had to build trust, right, for companies to trust, uh, you know, your open source work. I mean, I remember when I started Coldbox, you know, 15 years ago, you know, people didn't have that right trust to say, I'm going to build my entire, you know, system on this open source framework that one guy built. Right, and it's not even his full-time job, right? So developing trust, I think, has evolved through this 15 years, and now I think companies have a, a higher comfort level, right? Knowing that companies like Red Hat or Microsoft are behind a lot of these open source projects, and they, they have seen that you know one person developer can create something incredible and bring it mainstream. So I think that's what I've seen that it's it's great, but obviously right now. You know, it's super saturated, right, the market. So now what you get is just libraries that, that fall like flies, right? You basically get the projects that they, oh, it's a, a brand new framework, right? And then six months later, it's dead, right? So now, apart from trust, now I think the, the, there's a real difficulty in finding the projects that have longevity, right? So I think that's a lot for our interest, especially since we've been doing it for, for so long, is to tell and comfort, you know, companies and tell them we're here, we're not going anywhere, right? and to support them professionally, right? That's what professional open source comes from, right? So I think now there has to be a distinction between open source and professional open source, right? Oh, that's fascinating. And it's it's really interesting to see how it's evolved and how different companies in different ways can actually support the community, yeah, right? Uh, whether it's by creating, whether it's funding, whether it's revenue sharing uh, in some way or the other. Uh, also curious about mm -hmm. your talk here. Uh, sure. Uh, what was your talk about? How did that go? Yeah, my talk, it was on Alpine.js. It's actually a, a, a project that is a new, uh, not so new, but it's a framework for JavaScript uh, for front-end reactivity, similar to Vue.js, uh, but lightweight. It's what I call the jQuery replacement. That's basically how we have seen it, and we've been using it in many, many projects. And uh, I learned it, love it, and I wanted to represent it. Yeah. It sounds awesome. Yeah, we're good. Is there any final thoughts, things for the developer world, any, any things that you want to tell them? Well, I think mostly for, for the, the theme of open source, right? I think that, um, you know, there are ways to monetize it, right? And I think that sometimes developers want to go from zero to 100 in one minute, and that's just not possible, unless you basically sell all your rights and get venture, right? Uh, if that's what you want and sell your company, that's a different story. But for us, it was this is our mission, right? If that's how you feel, right, then just know that, yes, work is involved, right? Be smart with your finances, right? 
um, and also document. Uh, we are known for documentation in, in our CFML world. Uh, we have all of our frameworks and libraries are extremely well documented. And that was one of the, the things when I started doing professional open source is that uh, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. And that involved writing and that involved learning how to write and learning how to be smart and automate myself to create documentation or generate documentation. So, you know, Pedrito from Colombia can learn how to do it, but Gunther in, in Germany can also as well, right? So I think it was very important for me to, to make sure that the documentation was a key piece. And you see that in, in our space of, of software development that many, uh, many projects are extremely horribly documented, right? And the majority of, 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 of what the developers say, right, is like, there's the API docs, right? Go read the API docs. It's like, it's or better to just go to yeah, exactly. RTF. Yeah, and there, sometimes there is no manual, right? <laughs> so what, what manual am I going to read? It's some you know, Java docs in the ether, and they don't have anything. It's just purely generated. You go see the code, and there's like no documentation in, even in the code. So. I think if you want to actually be successful in open source, you have to take the time to know that you're developing it for somebody else, right? How is it going to be useful, you know, for uh, the developer, not for you, right? Because I can create many, many cool little features, but who cares, right? As long as, long as it's something is useful for somebody, that's what matters, and that's what matters to us. So that's what I would recommend for those young developers that, that want to, you know, take their, their, their ideas and create businesses around it or you know, be able to impact is to, to focus on hard work and documentation. That's amazing. Um, yeah. Final question, I'm really uh, yeah. interested. Uh, when you talk about um, younger developers, uh, folks who are interested in the open source community and they want to contribute, how do they figure out what they are building yeah. would actually be useful? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we've actually thought about this for many years, right? That's how do you bring and attract developers to help you, right? And I think it also relies on you as a maintainer to create you know, that for them, right? So we've had several initiatives, at least with Ortus, where in our repositories, uh, on our issue tracker, sorry, we create tickets that are easy, right? Or call it newbies. So people can come and actually grab them, right? And they can, they can contribute. I think there, a lot of people are very hesitant sometimes to, to send their pull request or something because they feel kind of ashamed or they don't know if they're gonna accept it or they, they kind of have that, uh, maybe I'm not good enough, right? And we all go through that, right? But I would say, uh, you know, kind of fight those those word demons, right? And, and just do it. Because first of all, if you go through the source code, you're gonna learn a lot, right? That's the first thing. You're, lear you're learning already by just looking at the source code. And then even if you just fix a typo, I think that it goes a long way because you learn how to do a, a fork, you learn how to do the pull request, you fix the typo, you start a relationship with the maintainers, right? And then you can even start asking questions and people already know you because you already sent a pull request, right? So I think that for those that want to get involved with open source, first of all, the maintainers need to make it easier, right, on how to contribute, right? So usually we try to put a bunch of contributing dot markdown files in all our repositories so people know how to do that, right? How to actually send stuff to us. And, and then just do it, you know, just do it, fix a typo. That would be, that, that's the first task. Go fix a typo and once you fix a typo, then you can start getting fancier. Excellent. That's it. Thank you so much for your time. Appreciate Thank you it. so much. I think one key takeaway from that conversation for me was really the change in um, how folks look at open source projects. I remember when I had started coding, which was a long, long time ago, uh, maybe like 10, 11 years ago, um, open source communities were not as proactively supported. But uh, 
through many conversations in this conference, that really came to light that, hey, there's different ways we, by which we can support open source. And, and that just, it's, it's awesome for the community. It's awesome. And it encourages uh, newer folks, younger developers to actually uh, get into open source, which I think is a fascinating trend um, in the industry. That's amazing. So who else did we interview? Steve, I think one of your former colleagues was, we actually spoke with Grace Jansen. Um, and, and she's fantastic. I mean, we've all been talking about it, but conferences are great because of that communication, you're talking to people. But she also made me actually, I think, understand containers a little bit better just based on the way she describes things um, and using her biology degree background for it. Um, so it was just very interesting. So tell us about who you are and what brings you to DevNexus. Yeah, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's great to join. Uh, so my name is Grace Jansen, and I'm a developer advocate at IBM. Okay. If you can't tell from my accent, based in the UK. <laughs> um, yeah, so I work with primarily like open, uh, open source, cloud native Java technologies. So stuff like Open Liberty, MicroProfile, Jakarta EE. I do some stuff with Reactive, which I really enjoy. Um, and yeah, just anything cloud native. Why Reactive do you enjoy? Oh, I just so I originally come from a biology background. So what? I did a biology degree and then switched to tech. So a lot of the time when I'm looking at technologies and methodologies, I'm linking it back to analogies that I understand from biology. And in my head, it just made complete sense with the reactive manifesto. Do you know it? I've heard of it. I'm not that familiar with it. Um, yeah. Is there anything like worth noting that you want to pull out of it yeah, that so really resonated with you? There's, there's four key principles behind it. Okay. So these, these key sort of behaviors are what drives applications that are trying to be reactive. So the underlying one is asynchronous message-driven communication. Mm. And in biology, I'm like, yeah, that's what we do all the time. It's like... <laughs> what is a good analog in biology for asynchronous message-driven <laughs> Funny you ask. I've got a whole talk on this. So I do it about bees. So if you think about bees oh, and bee societies, it is amazing. They have the same behaviors, like responsiveness, resiliency, um, what else, elasticity. So bees, right? So when a bee comes in, let's say a bee has gone and found food uh -huh. and they come back to the hive, then they want to spread the message that this food is there to be able to get more bees to come to it. So putting it on a topic. Exactly. Yeah. So what they do is broadcast the message because it would take forever going around to each individual bee going, do you know where the food is? Here's the food. Like, this is where it is. Can you go now? Are you going to go? And like waiting for a response, right? So instead they go to these dance floors and they do this basically wiggle with their butts where they show them where the food is. <laughs> and then lots of bees basically listen to that topic, just like in, for example, event yeah. streaming. Yes. Um, and so they listen and then they go out and they don't have to wait for a response. So way more asynchronous. That is nuts. Yeah, it's yeah. amazing. There's oh, so many analogies. That's gonna stick with me now that you put it like that. Like that will stick with me. <laughs> or you're gonna think of it as bees on dance floors. <laughs> Correct. Now I have this. Wiggle it. Yeah. So, so I think that you touched on something that I I, I did want to unpack. Mm -hmm. um, like you 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 mentioned that you're doing a lot of devil work with I, IBM, especially in the Java space. Yep. Um, a lot of uh, a lot of open source presence. Um, what is your sense on how open source in Java, is it growing? Is there a point where it, we, can do be, we can be doing more? What is your sense based on what you've seen? I think it's, it's growing and becoming like more prevalent. So if you look back even say 10 years and look at the difference between like, previously we had just like Java EE for example, generally it was run by typically one corporation and there wasn't really much control over 
features being put into it, how fast that was happening, etc. Whereas if you look now, you've got Jakarta EE, you've got OpenJ9, Adopt OpenJDK, MicroProfile, all of these fantastic open source specifications and communities that just weren't there before. And I think they play such a really crucial role in ensuring that we have that open collaboration mm. and that we can really push forward our technology because I think the danger with not having open standards and not having that open collaboration is that technologies fall behind, yeah. languages fall behind. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's so many new languages because Java, let's face it, it's like, it's older than me. Like, <laughs> it's been around a while, right? And so we have to keep innovating it to keep it um, able to be able to provide the features that we need for modern applications. Mm. Because otherwise, people are just going to start using a different language, going to use a different technology. And, and that's kind of the, uh, that's kind of what you see, right? Like, most people who come out of school now, they aren't necessarily taken to Java like Go. I did, for example, and this was like wait, like about ten or fifteen years ago. Mm. Um, so, do you think we could be doing more as contribute uh, as as you know people who think about open source to kind of how do we make sure Java is still attractive to people who are coming out of college? Um. <laughs> yeah, so there is actually a, a, an initiative being run within the Java community, uh, within things like MicroProfile and Jakarta E, within the Eclipse Foundations in open source, where they're specifically looking at, okay, how can we get Java into education? How can we let them know about, you know, Java is the language you want to be using because, A, it's got a huge history behind it, massive community, all these open source, and it's ready for your enterprise environments. You know, it's ready for your enterprise applications. A lot of these newer languages haven't had the thorough testing that Java has, right? And so there is, there, there's loads of different initiatives on at the moment. So if you're interested in getting involved in stuff like that, those who are listening, um, then definitely go and check out these open source communities like MicroProfile, CAR-TE. They have monthly calls and there are specific initiatives where they're looking at how to get more uh, Java into education and spread it, especially to younger communities. Yeah. That's really, powerful. Yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know about that. Yeah, yeah, that's really powerful, actually, in a way to get like younger people into it. Because you're right. The thing is, it, it does have more history. It has mm. been thoroughly tested. Where some of these newer languages, like I have a lot of friends who are looking at GoLang, but it, mm. it hasn't had that history or that footprint, yep. right? So that's a really insightful. And you've got to think about like these developers that we're looking at when we're looking at universities, colleges, education. These are the next enterprise developers. Correct. So we need to be targeting them and we need to be presenting Java as an attractive language so that we can continue this innovation. That was fantastic. Rohan, could you speak on the impact for you? For a lot of like non-technical folks, like myself, trying to understand technical movements, uh, using analogies is the best way to learn about it. Um, like I remember for a previous role, I, I I was managing a team that uh, was building services that leveraged, you know, messaging between services using Kafka. And I was like, I have no idea what Kafka is. And what is this? And there was this, uh, there was this really cool uh, presentation around using uh, on on what Kafka is, and they the analogy that they used was like otters communicating to other otters through a river and passing pebbles in a stream. And um, so I get how that works and like extending that to 
Um, extending that to using analogies from biology or from nature to explain complicated or most commonly used uh, new technology patterns is interesting. And I think everyone should use that if there's stuff that they don't understand or if nothing like this exists out there, tap into it. It's a great way to, great way to get your point across. So switching gears here, um, some of us I know were able to attend some sessions. Were there any st- sessions that stood out to you? Um, content, delivery, or a theme? The one that I went to that stood out to me was a talk about how to approach lifelong learning in a tech career, which... You know, wasn't learning about a new technology, but I thought it was a really good take on something that is just so vital to all of us continuing uh, down this career path since the industry changes so often. We do have to stay up to date. And a couple of the takeaways from that one were basically instead of trying to learn everything at once, which I certainly have been um, known to do sometimes, um, Start with something very small that just challenges you a little bit and builds on your existing skills. That way you won't get frustrated and you'll actually remember what you learned. And the other thing was to to interact with um, what it is you're learning. So the speaker gave some examples of some games that he had built in an attempt to learn um, various technology concepts. And then he remembered them really well because um, of the way that he interacted with them. And so that was my favorite talk and certainly something that I'm planning to apply going forward in my continuous learning of software. What is it like to go to an event like this? What what did, what else did you notice that developers are looking for or just anybody in the Java space who, who went to those conferences? So I'll give you one example of just how amazing conferences can be. So on one of the evenings, uh, we were on one of the parties, one of the parties, at a party, one of the, uh, somebody came up to me and we had a chat and they said they would like to become a speaker. And they said, how do we do that? And I talked to them and I said, you need, I need to introduce you to somebody who's gone through the sort of speaker training things that I've done in the past, but generally he's gone through the same program. And so that person was standing a few feet away. I got them to connected. And now this person is now going to help this other person to try and speak at a conference. That's how we promote the communities. You could never do that at a webinar. And I think one of the helpful things about conferences too is when you're only talking to, you know, the same people at the same company all the time, you can lose some perspective on what else might be happening out there in the community. So it it's really helpful to just go to conferences and be able to to talk to different developers and different industry professionals to try to control some of those assumptions and biases that we we might have developed in our own uh, insular space. And I mean that's the the beauty of conferences and kind of open source in general, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, uh, have we talked about how awesome it is to meet everybody in person again? Um, but that aside, um, um, it was so. Oftentimes, as like if you're if you're in the business of bringing new products to market or you know improving on them, the one thing that you want to do is 
always seek validation on whether you're solving the right problems. And the one thing about developers, as opposed to like other folks from another profession, is that they tend to be very candid about what sucks. And um, it was good to tap into those challenges because it shows that what we are trying to do at Sonotype is the right problems or are the right problems to solve and it's on us to solve it in a way that works well for everybody. Yeah, I mean, if you want to add on to that, I can, I can add a little bit. Uh, so as we went through that period of time of trying to do virtual conferences, virtual webinars, all these things, right? I think the one thing that wasn't replaced uh, is what I joked about earlier, but I think it is a place where like a lot of conversations happen is like the bar conversations. And I think Steve said it earlier. It's like, you do a webinar, whoever's doing the webinar, they sign off, you're done, right? And then you go about your day and, you know, never be heard again. Um, if you go to a conference, you know, the speaker might walk away or whatever after the conference. They, they've got busy lives too. They want to be by themselves, but usually you can catch somebody later in a casual setting, right? Whether it's a hotel bar or a sponsored bar event or whatever, right? Um, so that's a, a, an aspect that I don't think we ever figured out how to replace with the two years of virtual conferences. And I'm glad to see that back because like I said, a lot of conversations happen in, in those spaces. I think for me, um, yes, just the fact that I could meet so many people, uh, like going to conferences is something I love. Been fortunate enough to go to a couple before, to two or three before, but just being able to talk to so many people, um, meet everybody in this group, meet others. This was the first time I was meeting anybody from the company. I think it just energizes. It, it's re-energized me. It's, it's, you know, given a fresh lease of life, if you will, um, to the motivations and, and you know, the culture, um, the work culture in general. So I feel more involved and, and I think that's been uh, awesome. So I think, I think, to be honest, I think we have what we need. We touched on all those interviews um, and we're able to get some good feedback in the beginning. So I think we are good. Um, thank you all for entertaining this idea and going with us and helping us do the interviews or Steve just connecting us with the right people. So I think that's it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Wicked Good Development brought to you by Sonatype. This show was co-produced by Katie Gregg and Omar Torres and made possible in partnership with our collaborators. Let us know what you think and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to leave us a message. If you think this was valuable content, share this episode with your friends. Till next time.